so uh, this is our sixth uh, episode of the uh, Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm General Intellect Reading Group. Uh, and we are beginning part two of the book, or perhaps we're starting part two of the book because this is the second beginning of the book uh, here, as, as Beer puts it. Uh, at the beginning of the summary of part two, he says to reread the summary of part one. So I will do that right now, uh, just to follow Beer's instructions here. <laughs> All right. So uh, we begin chapter one by, begin, uh, by trying to understand what is special about today's manu managerial problems. There does indeed seem to be something unique, and it has to do with the rate of change. It could be that the lags in our systems of implementation are longer than the average interval of new technological impacts. If so, there is bound to be trouble. The tool which uh, we have, which might have coped with this problem because it is fast and flexible, is the electronic computer. But we have not understood how to use it. This book is about what to do next. We need a new insight which the science of cybernetics can provide. I like to see straightforward English wherever possible, but I have not been able to write this book without introducing some new terms. They are there to name new concepts or concepts which come from other sciences. If chapter two is read carefully and the reader doggedly refuses to be put off, he will be armed with the first set of tools he needs. There is a special glossary of cybernetic terms at the back of the book so that people can refresh their understanding if necessary. You may well find that these strange terms soon become old friends. They deserve to be, or I should not have bothered to introduce them. Next, chapter three, we start to use the tools. Here, the really fundamental problem of management is discussed and analyzed. It is the problem of complexity, how to measure it, how to manipulate it. We think of our problems as concerned with such things as men, materials, machinery, and money, and their interaction. It is just that interaction that causes the difficulties, and we must get at its nature. We must also get at the nature of the way huge numbers of states in a system soak each other up, which is the subject of Ashby's Law. It turns out that organization exists precisely to implement that cybernetic law. By the end of chapter three, the fundamental reasons should be clear why things cannot be organized down to the last iota and why in human terms, we should not even want to try. Of course, we all know that they cannot be so organized that indeed an awful lot of things just organize themselves. But when we know exactly why, we can approach the problem of how. This is the subject of chapter four, the nature of self-organization in very large systems. By understanding these principles properly, we may well be able to facilitate regulation without imposing it. And that is something all good managers try to do. There are some more new words here, which experience again shows to be useful to managers with an account of a deceptively simple little machine, which I call an algodonode. I have explained why in the text. But why another new word? The answer is that no one has actually isolated this mechanism before, and therefore it has no name. We all know about it, but the intention of cybernetics is to try to make such vaguely understood tricks perfectly explicit and clear, so that we really know how to use them. In chapter 5, the simple algorithm node is used as a building block 
block to construct a larger system. And the object of understanding that system is to discover the meaning of hierarchy in organizations. Hierarchies are needed for fundamental reasons given in logic when big systems are becoming organized. When they are translated into human terms, they seem to be all about power and prestige, with the result that people lose sight of their real nature and meaning in the system. By the end of uh, part one, we should have glimpsed a totally new perception of the nature of management and of how to approach its task of organization and control. Please do not despair if the practical relevance of all this is by no means clear yet. As the preface says, part one establishes some talk. We shall start talking this talk in part two. All right, so we're going to start talking the talk in part two. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's see, uh, any general thoughts about the summary of part two? Hands up. All right, Shane, go ahead. Um, yeah, it's a. It's it is remarkable that like it's it's a, you know well we've got all this out of the way now we can start talking the talk right. Um, one one line really jumped out at me that uh, models are more than analogies; they are meant to disclose the key structure of the system under study. Um, I think this gets to something that is often misunderstood about the concept of model, right? It's often um, I guess this is like I think maybe a thing we talked about on a as yet unpublished GIU thing of the, um, what was that thing Wark was going on about? Like the difference between metaphor and metonym, right? Where a metaphor um, compares two things as being similar in structure, but actually quite dissimilar and then transfers some understanding from one domain to another. Whereas if you phrase things in terms of metonym, you're kind of actually suggesting that the things are contiguous. Like it's, it, you know, when we think about say the metabolic rift or uh, Marx's kind of like concepts of these kind of social metabolisms, it's not that, the world is like a metabolism. It literally has a metabolism. That's kind of the the the, the transfer, uh, the, the kind of into the metonym kind of sphere. And I think Beer is getting at something similar here, that the models are not just analogies. It's not just about, oh, look at these two very dissimilar things that have some uh, rhetorical similarity or some, some sort of thing. He's actually saying these things literally are very similar to each other. There is a, there is a continuity between domains um, that And a model to be actually useful has to do that. It has to suggest a continuity across domains rather than just being like, uh, if, you, if you squinted at an elephant is kind of like a mouse or whatever, you know, it's like you, there actually has to be continuity there. That's actually a really bad example because it's not, not actually what I was talking about. But Yeah. No, I, I mean, describe... go, go ahead, Lauren. Uh, if anyone oh. wants to uh, speak, please put your hand up so I can just call you. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, no, and that, that sums up every experience I've ever had trying to construct like any kind of model <laughs> um, in, a, in a workplace environment, whether it's a model to implement like in the public or a model for your own private firm or like, yeah, so I, just, I, I got that. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, Shane and then Rudy. Yeah, just, just a brief thing. It's like I've, I've had similar things of like trying to explain stuff in like tech organizations, whatever, or trying to like even pitch the idea of like social organization or these kind of mechanics of social organization. And it's like, I'm not saying that your your group is like a machine. I'm saying that it literally is a machine. <laughs> you should treat it as such, you know, that um, maybe it can be very hard to get, get through to people with that. Uh, Rudy, please go ahead. Yeah, I think here you have the, the idea of uh, in the cybernetic brain between the science of uh, perform so science of framing and the science of performance and how beer is very very clear in saying this is when you have science of should do this and this is when you should do this it's not putting in those terms but i found it really great uh so the uh you're saying then that the uh form of modeling 
that beer is describing uh, is performative. But it's not only performative because uh, echoing Lauren that sometimes you just, or even also Shane, that you both said like, oh, this if you squint, it looks like it. Like that, that's not enough. So that would be pure science of performance, which you see a lot in complexity, which is why I came to despise a lot of complexity theory during my applied math postdoc. But then he knows sometimes, Beer knows when you say, okay, this is when you actually have to dissect this. While here is where you can't dissect it and you just have to be good with squinting. I see, I see. Okay. Um, well, uh, I think we will get quite a bit more into this question of what makes a good model uh, in our chapter. Um, and any other sort of thoughts about the summary of part two? Okay, um, I will just uh, read up to our description of chapter six, and then we'll get on to chapter six. Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, we can now start talking the talk. The object is to construct a model of the organization of any viable system. The firm is something organic, which intends to survive, and that is why I call it a viable system. There are many examples of such systems in nature, yet instead of using any of those which are known to work as models of the firm, we try to use organization charts that are really devices for apportioning blame when something goes wrong. They specify responsibility and the chain of command instead of the machinery that makes the firm tick. The problem is discussed at the outset, chapter six, as is the very nature of a model. Models are more than analogies. They are meant to disclose the key structure of the system under study. So if we want to understand the principles of viability, we had better use a known-to-be-viable system as a model. And that is why Part 2 embarks on an account of the way the human body is organized and controlled by its nervous system. We could have used another viable system, such as the amoeba or a whole animal species as the model. The results are the same, as they must be if viability as such has its own laws and enshrines its own principles, as cyberneticians contend. But the human body is perhaps the richest and most flexible viable system of all. Besides, there is an extra advantage. All of us have bodies, and inevitably we have a good deal of insight into their characteristics. Most people know little, however, about how it all happens. For that reason, there has to be quite a lot of explanation about the physiology of the nervous system. Uh, and this is what we're going to see in Chapter 7. So um, I do think it is interesting here. Uh, Beer is saying, well, you know, it would in principle be just as good to use any other uh, known viable system as our model uh, in order to demonstrate the principles of viability or the principles of cybernetics. But I think what really makes the um, basis of the VSM in the human body useful is the second point that Beer brings up, which is that we all have a certain intuitive grasp of how the human body works, or at least we can examine our own bodies and, and make analogies to what is being said in the, in the um, model and what is being described in the uh, physiological chapter in chapter seven. Um, because I don't really, I'm skeptical, uh, that the human body is in fact the richest and most flexible viable system of them all. 
I'm, I'm not really sure that's true. Uh, that might just be human bias speaking. <laughs> uh, but uh, at the same time, I do agree with the point that he's making about how intuitive it is to use our bodies as models, uh, models for organization. Uh, Brett, please go ahead. Yeah, I'm also not terribly convinced I agree with him in terms of like all viable systems are necessarily interchangeable. Maybe it's just my good leftist thinking that has gotten to me, but I'm, I'm very receptive to the claim that you can just sort of change things out and it's the same. Um, I get what his point is, but I, I just, I'm just inherently skeptical of that. Right. Fair enough. Uh, Lauren and then Brett, was it? Oh, Brett, oh, Brett, you were just turning yours off, I think. So Lauren, go ahead. Um. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about analogies too much since I know we're not here to talk about analogies. Uh, but I, I think like... Um, what it did for me, just like reading that sentence, I like my whole career experience like just made sense <laughs> because um, I've been a bid developer. Like I've been that person writing that org chart with those responsibilities uh, to fit like the client brief that we're pitching for on a bid. Um, and I've also like been in very volatile uh, sort of uh, hierarchies within, a, within an organization. Um, and why it found reflecting upon looking at that org chart that I used to be in and comparing it to an analogy of um, it being a central nervous system, it, I was trying to say, like the the flow of um, consciousness kind of cascades down from like your CEO to like your managing director down to like your little people. And there's no sort of like communication back up. There's any ever communication back up when shit goes wrong and it's like, okay, now we need to have like a meeting <laughs> to talk about how we can uh, make things better for our analysts and the people at the bottom who do all the shit and don't have a way to communicate back up to the top. Um, whereas if you look at like a nervous system or like my body, it's like if I think like, oh, I'm going to go pick up that pan handle that's been on the oven and grab it, my hand's going to tell me like, hey, that shit hurts. Like stop doing that. You're hurting me. And then you get that like communication instantaneously as opposed to like the old model that we are familiar with, which is, do the thing you get told to do. You hate doing the thing. The thing's inefficient. The thing sucks. And then you go months <laughs> and then you have like a meeting to say, okay, well, I managed a director sucks. How can we get him to do his job better? And I don't know, I'm rambling out, but that's, that was my experience. Like thinking about that, that framing. Yeah. It's, it's certainly like indicative of the kinds of organizations we might like to have <laughs> in terms of like, yeah, our bodies work pretty well for the most part. And, uh, they communicate the things we need to know for the most part. Uh, <laughs> and our organizations don't do either of those things. Um, so let's go to, uh, Steve. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the framing of this in terms of the organization charts there to account or to assign blame, um, you know, an accountability so people can cover their asses is, you know, quite the opposite of what we're trying to do to get to an actual functional system. So that was um, a nice, succinct way of uh, framing it. But the comment I wanted to make, um, harkening back to the earlier point about not being convinced about, um, you know, the human body as being either fully viable or necessarily the best example. Um, I mean, yeah, of course, I, I, I agree with that too. But, you know, he makes the claim throughout about how what he's really interested in, you know, this gets a little bit ahead, but what he's really interested in is the uh, invariant features of all viable systems. And, you know, he's making the claim that since the human body is 
kind of by definition a viable system, so we should use that as a model and then not worry about the other things. But it certainly begs the question of like, well, maybe a comparative study between the amoeba, the animal species, and the human, uh, in terms of what the viability that is shared, you know, the invariant feature is shared by the three of those systems or whatever, um, might be, you know, also illustrative uh, and. As far as I know, he doesn't really do that. And of course, you know, knowing what I know about the BSM in anticipation, uh, it's very human-centric and laid out like the central nervous system in a way that, oh, maybe the amoeba isn't like that. And maybe that doesn't matter. But um, that bias might, you know, put him, uh, paint him into a corner later on. And we never really know if we just look through the myoptic and narrow view of, of the human body. Right. <laughs> So I, I think there are really two things there. Like uh, the first one is getting at general scientific principles of viability, uh, which can be done through comparative studies of different viable systems. Uh, and that's going to advance our understanding of cybernetics. But the VSM is not a purely analytical model. Um, as you know, Veer, as Beer describes uh, at the beginning of the book, uh, he wrote this book with the mind uh, that the text and the reader were subsystems in interaction with one another. Um, and I do think that uh, using the human body is a useful communication device, um, even if. Uh, there may be greater cybernetic insights that could be gained from a more comparative or sort of like multi-dimensional presentation. It's just that, uh, yeah, as you said, like we need to be a little bit careful about assuming that we can generalize from this one case. I, I just think beer for the purposes of communication is doing this and it, it does make sense in that regard. Uh, Matt, please go ahead. Yeah, look, you know, like the absolute like rigor of the model um, uh, is like a little like, you know, I'm kind of just taking it as an assertion and just, you know, kind of seeing where he goes with it. Um, uh, Cause yeah, I mean, like, like it would be really hard to actually, you know, look, look like, uh, 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 you know, but it, it would be pretty hard to falsify minimally, but, but, you know, like, uh, um, I don't know what, and you know, like, like this is also kind of putting the, the, the cart before the horse and, you know, maybe just sort of, um, using confirmation bias to, to map, um, uh, um, something that, you know, I'm, I'm already kind of into, but I mean, like, I, I feel, I feel like it does, you know, uh, map onto an amoeba, even if, um, you know, even if there is no nervous system, like, uh, um, you know, they, they, they have like networks of like, you know, chemical receptors that do change it over like even long time scales. And, uh, um, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's a very different kind of intelligence than, um, uh, uh, you know, like something with a, with a spine, but I mean, like, like, like it is, and, uh, I, I feel like you can map pretty much every part of the VSM onto some part of, uh, you know, of an amoeba. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. Um, I mean, I, I, I feel like there's probably a like kind of first year, uh, uh, introduction to viability studies textbook that is yet to be written uh, that would give you all these different examples and sort of like say like hey here are general principles of viability blah 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 uh, it's just yeah maybe it's not a management text maybe it is more of a, you know first year science textbook um, Shane go ahead yeah um, yeah just kind of basically echoing uh, what Matt said like uh, but to, to really clarify something here 
Um, yes, beer is focusing on the invariant features. Like it's, it's almost a tautology, right? Like he's only focusing on the things that are invariant across different instances. And so it's suitable to then compare them across instances. But the invariant features are functional. Uh, so that the the feature that is shared will be a function, but not necessarily a physiological or even structural similarity. Um, so the amoeba regulates its internal fucking bullshit, whatever it has inside, via, I don't know, amino whatevers. And the human body regulates the same thing, but via glucose or something like that, right? Like it's, these are functionally the same, but not like actually kind of like physiologically the same. And um, it can be, I think this is where it resonate with Steve, right? That like it can be a bit of a trap to only think of the human body sort of analogy stuff as being the, the main feature here. Um, because I think something I noticed quite a bit in Beer's writing is that he'll, he'll have these kind of like general sort of concepts and then he'll pull out an example that feels really far out of left field. But then when you look at it, it's like, oh, yeah, he's totally right. Like the um, in Designing Freedom, he talks about like the regulation of the department store as an example of Ashby's law. And like that initially struck me as like, wow, where is he going with that? And then but like he is right. The functions are all identical, but the form is completely wildly divergent. Right. Like um, such that if you're only looking at the, the human, the specifically anthropomorphic features, you'll definitely miss all of the actual kind of like functional uh, invariance going on there. So just just keep function in mind all the time here. He's, he's only concerned with function. He's actually kind of not really concerned with the, the material formal components at all. Right, except to the extent that we have an entire chapter on physiology in chapter seven, right? So like, mm, yeah, yeah. The, these, you know, it's an illustrative example that's going to get at the functions as mm -hmm. the one he's going with here. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's also bringing in examples about existing organizations and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I think we're all kind of on the same page with this. And I think you're absolutely right about the, the importance of uh, looking at this from a functional perspective. Um, OK, uh, so let's talk about Chapter 6. Um, so um, <clears throat> we'll start off i guess at the the, the very beginning here um the firm which is the entity a manager controls is a good example of a system of high complexity in which the input and output are themselves high variety subsystems what connects the input to the output is the domestic firm itself that is the man materials machines and money which are based in particular locations with a company sign outside the whole complex of activity going on inside is an anastomotic reticulum. What sort of description of all this would be useful in discussing such typical managerial problems as organization efficiency and objectives? The orthodox answer to this is uh, to this question is of the following kind. We need an org chart of some sort which will identify how each part of the business relates to each other part with the main intention of determining where responsibilities lie. Since part might mean anything less than the whole, we may have set a set of organization uh, charts, or we may have a set of organization charts. In this, the major parts are first exhibited and the minor parts are exhibited later in, on in subsidiary charts, which could carry the detail down to individual people at the lowest organizational level if need be. 
These charts are, uh, or more usually are not, but could be supported by detailed jobs descriptions intended to show how the whole thing works. So the charts themselves specify an anatomy of management, while the job description specifies physiology. Um, all right, any, any comments on this? Uh, Brett, go ahead, and then Lauren. Yeah, I hope this is not too far afield, but uh, this whole chapter, especially this beginning part, just reminded me of, like, I took a class on, like, on Disney, but it was, we ended up going into, like, the metaphysics of a corporation. Like, what even is a corporation? And like, it's, like, the way he said, like, oh, it's just, like, a thing, a collection of org charts with some sign out front. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not, a, like, you know, different theories of what a corporation is. It's a person. It's a set of org charts with a sign out front. <laughs> Um, you know, it is an entity a manager controls. That's, that's Beer's maybe description here. Uh, uh, Lauren, go ahead. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of like um, uh, how an org shot is like an anatomy, but it's like a very normative anatomy. So it doesn't account for like idiosyncrasies or non-normative like forms and like as people, people come in all sorts of forms and like have their own like ways of being. Um, and I felt this like really strongly when I was helping on a bid for um, this like really massive transport thing where that involved trains and ferries and um, paratransit and a bunch of other stuff. And in practice, um, the way they operated was the ferries were so small, the team just reported straight to like a managing, managing director, but buses, paratransit, everything else had a bit more complexity. And so there was like a manager between like each of those divisions to um, manage that communication, smooth that communication between them. But on the org chart, it looked messy and disgusting <laughs> because you had like this ferry team reporting straight to like your managing director and then this other chain of managers um, for every other division. And they were like, well, this looks kind of messy. So we'll just create a ferry manager <laughs> that we don't need. So the org chart will like look normative, will follow the types of organizational charts that we expect to see. And it just didn't work at all for like what like functions were actually going on in, in, the, in that thing. Right. So, uh, you know, I guess uh, this would perhaps be uh, a bit of the danger that you are pointing to, Shane, where you get stuck on anatomical structures and differences and maybe... <laughs> It's like, oh, the anatomy of an org chart must be symmetrical. That is a, there's a, a sort of a priori principle of org charting. So we must have a director for the ferry section because otherwise we'll lose our symmetry. Um, when that's just has literally nothing to do with any of the people involved. Um, okay, uh, anyone else uh, wanna comment on uh, this, this little blurb of the front? Okay. Um, so I think I think a uh, very uh, important thing here is that the charts uh, specify an anatomy of management, while the jobs description specify its physiology. Um, so this is, you know, on the face of it, sounds like a complete description because you have entities and you have functions, right? Like these. The, you, you have the anatomy, uh, which is what is the thing, and then you have the physiology, which is what does the thing do? 
Uh, so it's like, yeah, looks looks good. Seems to check out. Okay, cool. Uh, which is perhaps the reason why this uh, managerial method continues to be used pervasively in 2020 uh, when Beer wrote this book in like, what was it? Like 71 or something. Uh, so <laughs> it's, uh, things haven't changed much at all as we can see from Lauren's example. Uh, all right, so, so let's go on. Um, all right, uh, so far so good, but we are left with the question as to how all this is to be done. There are normally, I speak from fairly extensive observation, three phases in this task. The firm has not to be invented, it is there. First and foremost, then, the task is one of description. But whoever sets out to supply the description knows a lot about this kind of structure in advance. He knows about the basic divisions of firms into parts such as production and sales, he knows about the functional divisions which are commonly used. For instance, there are line and staff relationships. Thus, he will, for example, expect to find an accounting function which will be staff, groups of middle managers, line responsible to senior managers, and so on. He may well expect, what is more, a good deal of disagreement about certain twilight areas, of which production control and management accounting are both typical. We shall see why in a moment. Uh, so I wanted to clarify some of the terminology used here because it is a little bit business school um, and maybe not super clear uh, because he doesn't spell it out. It's just kind of assumed that this book is written for managers and managers will know what this stuff is. Um, so uh, first of all, <clears throat> um, line and staff relationships uh, so this comes from military organization, right? You have the staff officers and line officers. Uh, staff, like the general staff, is going to be in charge of general understanding, general functionality, uh, the sort of overall regulation of the system, whereas line is concerned with more uh, lower level, uh, immediate practical tasks. Um, and then we have uh, these terms, which I have heard before, but hadn't really heard that much before reading this book, uh, production control and management accounting. So production control is essentially making sure that uh, the different parts of the organization are taking in inputs and producing outputs in the right proportions according to demand and supply. Um, and this is sort of like the overall plans of the organization. So this is kind of like the input output stuff uh, that we've been we've been talking about previously. Uh, and then management accounting um, is going to be important because it's like it's accounting, but because it is, because it's essentially doing budget allocation, it ends up taking on managerial roles, even though in theory accounting is kind of like a passive activity. Um, so he's saying like these two areas end up screwing up the whole line staff division and they end up screwing up the production sales division. Um, and so, you know, anybody who's gonna make one of these org charts already knows that this is gonna be screwed, but Nonetheless, an org chart they will make. Um, all right, so let's go to Matt. 
Yeah, uh, 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 was, was thinking like m- maybe the reason why like the um, uh, the, the you know the the chain of blame uh, thing is the thing that gets reified is just like the time scale like that it operates on because like you know on some level like these legal things like you know like they they, they don't really change that often so you know like that kind of makes sense to map out in a chart but you know like uh, 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 especially in, in like kind of a big organization where like you know. You, you might be working in pairs on different projects in different weeks. Like, you know, how would you actually wet map that out? Like, I, I guess I guess that's what Beer did when he was doing consulting. But I mean, like, that th- that changes way too fast. And like, and, and so you know, it, it, it winds up being this thing where, uh, you know, because because that's the thing everyone can see. That's what winds up generalizing to other stuff and just screwing people up. Uh, Lauren, go ahead. Yeah, I thought this came to me like off of that, which is um, the kind of. I think it's like situational irony or like some kind of irony and where um, the Orgchart acknowledges that it's bad <laughs> because like every Orgchart I've written begins with who was, resp- who was responsible when things go wrong. And so it's like this is weird sort of like, uh, yeah, like ironic acknowledgement that this is wrong because we start with like when things go wrong, this is who is responsible. Yeah, I, it, I mean, it's it's sort of like, you know, any organization is going to have failures. That's reasonable. Uh, you would want to make design an organization that is capable of dealing with failure. Uh, but probably the right way to design it is not like when something bad happens, the solution is to shoot the cat, right? <laughs> Like the solution is to get rid of the person who fucked up. And we know who fucked up because the org chart tells us who fucked up. Uh, and, and that that's like, well, there we go. Viability. We've done it. Um, so <laughs> that, that, yeah, totally. Uh, all right. So second phase of the job. Uh, here um, he describes, uh, so he says, uh, the second phase of the job involves not only description, but prescription. Uh, whoever is undertaking this task has a limited number of concepts to work with. If he remains orthodox, concepts which are generally current with the manager concerned. He has a limited collection of physical equipment too. Basically a two-dimensional piece of paper and as many ways of drawing on it in thin, thick, dotted and colored lines as he thinks people can stomach. Uh, and I've very much seen this in a work before. Uh, in the, the the 2008 crisis, I was working um, at a public uh, small university and the administrator there uh, was dealing with the prefecture and trying to keep the school open. And there was all these discussions and meetings going on. And one day the, uh, the, the dean or the, the school president showed up with a, a, an org chart of astonishing complexity uh, and it was just like everyone was shaking their head like how is this supposed to help us in any way at all uh, <laughs> Shade go ahead or sorry Shade go ahead uh, yeah I just find this bit about like um, having this very limited vocabulary and a limited tool set and then having uh, the comparatively high variety of like the number of different ways that you can draw colored lines up up to the point where it's nauseating as being this like compensating force like you have a fundamentally just insufficient tool set and so the 
the the way to make up for it is to put as much shit on the PowerPoint slide as possible and just just drive people insane. And maybe if maybe if they go nuts looking at all your colored lines, they won't notice that it's all bullshit, right? Well, and it's exactly the same problem we just ran into in the previous chapter with that circuit diagram, right? Like it's it's like it's too complicated. It just doesn't convey the information that's needed, uh, and so we had to get a, a, a very nice computer model of it, uh, which uh, is, is awesome, and we'll definitely we'll we'll share that when we publish this thing. Um, okay, so uh, blah blah blah. Um, if he if he is knowledgeable about management theory, he will also have quote unquote principles to guide him. These principles, one boss for one man, five is the ideal number of immediate subordinates. You should not mix a line and staff responsibility in one man, are distillations of managerial culture. There must be some substance in them, but I put the matter kindly. Um, and this reminds me completely of when uh, we were reading uh, Gletkin's article about Dewey, or sorry, not Dewey, uh, about uh, Taylor and the problems with using uh, rules of thumb and sort of folk knowledge as managerial principles is like, well, yeah, maybe there's some substance in them, but who knows? It's just, they're just heuristics that are untested and just kind of go around in manager books. Like, you know, 15 ways to solve your organization from experts. Uh, how do we know they work? We don't, but they, they are authorities, so we're just going to take it from authority. Um, okay, <laughs> then we get to the third phase of the process, which is essentially the whole thing fucks up. Uh, <laughs> the whole sorry exercise uh, comes to its inevitable conclusion. Um, so the formal statement of the company structure is that in the managing director's office is typically something we are working towards, something we know needs revising, or something we are updating through a process of evolution. As to the job descriptions, where they exist, they turn out to be descriptions of men and not of jobs at all. For the fact that is that jobs do not do themselves, but men do them. And the result is that people describe what the man is doing or what the boss thinks the man ought to be doing and not any such impersonal thing as a job. If a big clinical effort is made to describe the job, the odds are that no actual man can be found to fill it. So the job has to change. Actual company structures are heavily dependent on the particular people who fill the acknowledged roles, and when those particular people leave the structure often, uh, this, the structure often has to change. So we saw earlier that we had the anatomy and physiology, but actually the physiological uh, description is complete bunk. It's just anatomy. It's just describing who's there and putting a fancy name on it. Uh, Shade, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's this uh, this this entity thinking that beer cautions against so often, right? That like, um, the, like yeah, we we mix up people for for functions because people have a kind of immediate phenomenological reality to us, and it's actually kind of tricky to think in terms of functions instead. Um, and this this is this is really fucking difficult stuff, right? Because I think it are, there's something about our kind of neural apparatus that, that actually leads us to go astray in this kind of way uh, quite often. Um, and I, I notice sometimes with people when I when I kind of talk about the stuff, right, and this kind of like shifting the attention onto onto functions, 
they often get a bit spooked that like because I think one of the one of the kind of uh, nostrums of management is that like, oh you know we're all about people you know that that kind of shit like the fucking very neolib kind of like um, s- supposedly softly softly kind of stuff of like oh we really care about people here and. It's, it's not that you shouldn't care about people, but the problem may be that the thing you are dealing with may not, in fact, be a person, right? Like, but, and if you only focus on... It's like looking at all the Lego bricks and failing to see the castle that, that they're making, right? That if you're only focusing on the Lego bricks, you'll miss the entire fucking point. But like the, it's the functions and the like relations between the people and all the dynamic stuff. That's the thing you're actually managing. Managing people is kind of a triviality in some ways. It's the, it's the weird shit that people do that needs to be managed. Well, yes, I, like, I think that's tr- certainly true to a point. Um, there is the other thing, though, that happens in organizations, and I was talking with Lauren about this yesterday after reading, and it's that organizations are organized according to who can get along with whom. And in that case, the people are very important. In fact, the people are actually mm-hmm. the determining factor, not yeah, the yeah. functions at all. Uh, yeah, right. The function is simply who can stand to be in the same room as this other person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, Laura, go ahead. Yeah, no, I um, I just wanted to, yeah, like, I very much recall sitting down and, like, one of our office planning days for the coming year and um, looking at the managers we had on hand in our tiny office. And there was only, like, one that was really interested in managing analysts. And, like, we had a director who helped people but wasn't responsible for anyone because he hated like managing other people and then like our managing director likewise like I reported to him but he hated managing people as well so I didn't really have a manager um I don't think I needed one but it was, it was that, I think like beer mentioned being in that spot of like um being very junior but then not really having a hierarchical structure to buffer like him from the managing director um and yeah just like the arbitrariness that went into like well i don't really feel like managing anyone so next year i think it makes sense if Lauren managed as large as managed by richie and i remember like feeling very like, a very heated feeling of having to hold myself back from saying like i will fucking quit on the spot <laughs> like i sorry i swore but like i will quit on the spot if like um richie's my my manager going forward and yeah I, anyway i just i had a lot of feelings reading this chapter <laughs> uh brett go ahead i'm sorry i was muted um I'm also reminded of uh, bullshit jobs where, like, some people just exist and they don't really have a function. They just, they're just there, um, <laughs> which is sort of my position right now. But um, I don't know. It reminded me of that. Uh, Lauren, go ahead. Yeah, no, I co-signed. Like, I, I've also been a part of um, designing bids in rooms where um, there's been a lot of, like, delicate egos. <laughs> and it comes to time for, like, project renewal. And it's like, well, like... Bob sucks, but Bob's liked by everyone, so he's going to have a job on this team, even if he isn't good at it. And then you have to like buffer in people to make up for like Bob's deficiencies, and like it's it, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that kind of thing that is missed by um, looking at it, like an objective, like organizational chart with purpose and meaning and stuff. Uh, okay, and Shane. <laughs> yeah, just like uh, maybe it was Brett's thing there of like. Why is this like this person doesn't seem to actually do anything on thing? Well, no, they're they're clearly they're like stepping up to a meta level. Their function is to sit there like a cuckoo and prevent anyone else from sitting there. Their 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 function is to occupy space and prevent and prevent any other person from being in that space. Um, yeah, so it's pathological stuff, right? 
And Brett? Just real quick, I think it's the, um, was it, was it Beer that, came, that said the function of a machine is what it does? Mm-hmm. Or the function of a system is what it does. The function of a, of a job is what it does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And so when we get to these uh, questions of sort of interpersonal dynamics and how they are actually determining for the structure of organizations, we haven't talked about this yet in the book, and it isn't covered in this book um, very much, or sorry, in this chapter very much. But I think the sort of reconciliation we can get here is that you need to kind of do like, uh, you know, like family systems, family system dynamics understanding of this stuff to essentially understand what the underlying functional structure is that causes these people to uh, behave so dysfunctionally and ultimately gum up the works of the organization entirely. Uh, So like, you know, why is it that all managers are assholes? <laughs> Why do they always inevitably become assholes? Uh, and and, and, and uh, why do these particular uh, managers behave these particular ways? I'm not saying you could just like erase individual personality characteristics, but there are definitely functional dynamics that encourage the creation of certain working personalities um, and also... Uh, you know, can foster feuds and so on. Um, so uh, I think that's kind of the reconciliation we might get at here, um, which is not to say that we're going to build a better org chart because org charts are shit, uh, but <laughs> we might get a better organizations. Uh, Lauren, go ahead. Sorry, I feel like a lot, a lot of talking. Um, but uh, I think, too, what is interesting is um, how perception of self like plays into these org charts and especially for folks at the top who like have a more of a say over what that structure looks like um how like i remember on that project that so for renewal um there was one guy who had on the previous project been the director but he'd gotten in some arguments with the client and so he, they were like we really can't like keep him as the director so we kind of have to demote him to like managing director and put this guy up as director now and like that being a very delicate issue because it was a, this perception that oh he's being demoted or like he somehow was inadequate in his previous job and if we move him that's an acknowledgement of that and like that's we can't do this <laughs> right and that gets at the whole functions of the compensation system uh in the, in the organization uh okay great uh so um breakdown happens uh, and uh, this is the another thing I was talking about with Lauren. This very final sentence of this of this paragraph, which is that you end up with indispensable people in the organization uh, who have job descriptions that are written to describe what they do, because they are the only thing holding the organization together. Um, and once that person leaves. The job description, which describes exactly the person who is indispensable, uh, cannot be filled because (laughs) people are unique to some degree and uh, your odds of finding a clone of the person who just left are not very good. Uh, Brett. 
Yeah, my organization, and I have no idea why they did this, but they decided to name entire divisions after people. So, like, it's it's the it's the Bergstrom division, or like, in our entire like billing system, and entire like our entire organization is based on like the managers who are technically able to see them. The whole organization is based on that, and it's it's ridiculous. I believe that's often referred to as feudalism. <laughs> Like the 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 Habsburg house, uh, you know, the York house, uh, and so on. Um, all right, great, wonderful. Uh, okay, um, we then have a discussion about how um, line and staff uh, officers or uh, managers or workers. Uh, can actually have skill sets that are at odds with their position in the hierarchy, and therefore they end up doing jobs that are not actually covered by their line or staff position. Um, and this reminded me a lot of debates that happened in the 90s about um, Japanese, sorry, the about Japanese political science or in Japanese political science about the organization of Japanese politics. And um, something that American scholars, uh, for the most part, were perplexed by was that the map and the territory in Japanese politics were often very highly at odds with one another that you had someone who had a relatively junior position in the organization, but was actually like the shadow power broker who was running the whole thing. Um, and they were like, how can the org chart and the organization not mad match each other? These inscrutable Orientals. Um, and uh, I think what we see here is that like, really this is a difference more that is a matter of degree rather than a difference of kind because what beer is describing with like the production manager and the chief metallurgist uh is basically the same thing it's it's people have competencies and relationships that don't fit the org chart and the way the organization actually works just it isn't the same thing um anyway that was that was kind of interesting to me coming from my old Asian studies background. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so that is all invented. Even so, real life is just like that, and it is a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great way to put it. It's a lot of fun. How's work? It's a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> it would be disastrous if some neurotically disposed chairman or consultant tried to insist that everyone behave like the org chart. But the question is whether real life in the firm is best described by this three-phase effort and whether, if so, a structure specified like this really helps best in solving the problems that arise in transferring input to output are unanswered. I shall answer them quite flatly in the negative and for three key reasons. Um, so yes, it doesn't work. Uh, first, the mode of description is wholly arbitrary. Um, so, more or less, he says that uh, this form of management derives from a scale where 
uh, in like sort of the classical capitalism phase or the the phase of like the true uh, family owned business bourgeois era. Um, you had a level of management that was kind of human scale where people's individual uh, intellectual and emotional capacities were adequate to the scale of production they were doing. Uh, but that just doesn't map on to what we live with today at all. Uh, and we're still using this bullshit for managerial culture from the sort of early bourgeois developments. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I, I love this section, right? Because it really nails down um, where this thing comes from. Because the, the, the org chart emerges in response to a, a problem. But the problem here is, firstly, it's the, the sort of personal private tyranny of the, the sort of entrepreneur or whatever. But that's not really the problem. It's the delegation, right? The problem arises when the size of the problem grows too large for the tyrants to keep uh, everything on the rails. And so they must delegate. Therefore, they must need a kind of way of accounting for this delegation. And that's your, your org chart, right? The hierarchy. And the, the explicit problem that it's solving is the pushing downwards of decision making uh, away from the body of the, the tyrant and down through the micro tyrants. That's all it does. That is the entire function of the org chart. It does nothing else aside from allow the, the tyrant to uh, depersonalize some of his decision-making capability and push it downwards. That's the, that's the extent of it. That's, that's the, the problem that it arose in answer to. Um, if we don't actually face that problem, we should not in any way imitate or use this thing. Um, it, is, it is not a general feature of reality. It's not a general feature of human social structures, anything like that. It is a very specific answer to a very specific problem. Um, he calls it like the, the history of management. It's very historically specific, this. Um, and I think this kind of section here, this, these couple of paragraphs really, um, for me, like the, the, the problem with this, like the, the Leninist party form or whatever, or, or the kind of the typical left organizing, or even the structure of unions and so on, um, this, this, the, these couple of paragraphs kill that shit stone dead. Mm -hmm. Like it is, this, this stuff is, it is simply unsuitable for the task. It is, it is very suitable for a very particular task, but it is not suitable for these tasks in general. Sorry, folks, just ain't going to fucking work. Um, so it is imperative that we shift our thinking off of this org chart, hierarchical, uh, tyrant delegation stuff. Just get it all out of your head, get a different model. Um, I like the historical specificity of this. Yeah, uh, so... I think it's <clears throat> there's a mention early or sorry later in uh, this chapter about uh, the div the sort of uh, uselessness of the line staff division, and that's pretty much the entire Leninist political model is the line staff division because it just it's mm -hmm. it's it's a military organization designed for the purposes of civil war, and yeah. it it, it, like it is it is created. Uh, on the line staff lines, and that's why you have secrecy in the way mm -hmm. that you do, and you way of decision making among the sort of uh, uh, Politburo or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, it's just that model. 
Um, and oh, it is yeah. today strictly and absolutely fucking worthless. Like there's there's, there's no argument about it, right? Like it's. And if we can we're, even call we're back not to in a civil years. war. <laughs> no, we can even we can also call back to brain the the thing at the very start of the book, right? Um, absolutum obsoletum. If it works, it's out of date. Now that shit didn't work in the early 20th century, and even if it had, it would be so out of date as to be fucking useless anyway. So, I. Like, sorry, fucking Leninists, you're just going to have to drop that shit. Like, move on. It's just going to have to fucking happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, uh, beer is kind of basically unequivocal about this. It's like, this This is not the right model at all. It's It doesn't, it, it barely worked in the first place. Um, this, like, society is being structured around this model, uh, turned out to be fucking horseshit. Uh, nope, drop it, move on, do something else. Um, that's what the, the back half of the, the chapter will be about. Um, okay, Matt and then Lauren. Yeah, uh, 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 yeah. It, it, it is interesting how, how, how like, uh, um, uh, you, you, you mentioned, you know, how, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, ideal waters that you're swimming in, you know, like, really just show, uh, uh, you know, dictate what questions are asked in the first place. It is wild, like, how much of, like, uh, econ and, and and stuff is you know it's it's not about like optimizing production it's uh um yeah the, the, you, 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 I mean some of it is but I mean like yeah the, uh, a lot of it is uh, you know these uh, principal agent problems they really are all about just how to you know how to uh, have a property owner you know uh, uh, ensure that you know they're uh, uh, you know they can um, uh, you know put the um, uh, uh, inf inf enforce their will upon you know their property, which includes their employees, <laughs> and like and, and like yeah, like I, I think uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of value in game theory, but like you know it is you know the, the questions that are asked are you know are are, are just very clearly like guided by um uh, uh, the bourgeoisie, and uh, uh, that yeah, then like th I think that's one of the most uh, th that's one of the areas where like you can just see it most strongly. Yep, it's like hey. Uh... You know, so, you can also do it for voting systems. You also can do it for um, uh, structured auctions that, you know, like, uh, yeah, the, how to, you know, how to mutually have everyone benefit the most. But I mean, and, you know, like, like people do that. But yeah, yeah, like so much of it is just, no, like, how, how do I complete my contracts? How do I make sure that my employees just do everything I want? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that is obviously the most lucrative uh, form of strategizing in a bourgeois society. Uh, okay, Lauren, go ahead. I'll, I'll be quick because this is like a kind of side tangent, but and it's not addressed in this chapter, but it's about um, sort of how gender plays in with this kind of stuff as well. Because like um, I like my previous manager, managing director had a preference for hiring women he could yell at. <laughs> um, and so uh, and like and, like and that's not a thing you can ever address in the org chart because like gender isn't recognized in org charts. Um, and so, like, you'd, I was in the office for, like, a year, and you'd see this patent develop of, like, he'd hire people, women, <laughs> who, like, he would then scream at, and then they'd stick around, because, like, I hate to generalize, but, like, women are pretty typically quite good <laughs> at, like, managing uh, sort of really angry men. <laughs> um, yeah, so, it was just, it's just, I, yeah, I just wanted to flag that. Yeah, totally, and, like, you know, uh, there's a pretty obvious reason why this stuff is not, uh, why, why, why gender is not addressed in this book, which is because it is written for a male audience uh, by a man uh, in an extremely male-dominated managerial culture uh, at the time that Beer was writing. Uh, so there is, like, a very uh, gendered dimension to uh, this book, which, you know, comes through the fact that, you know, everybody's referred to as a man. Uh, in the book um, uh, so it's very good you, like 
it, it's good to bring up these things because like they don't come up in the chapter and I kind of expect they're not going to come up in any of the chapters because Beer's just not concerned with it uh, in a really uh, unhelpful way. Um, but yes, that is absolutely a part of how these organizations are structured as well. Um, okay. Uh, let's move on then. Uh, that, so that's the first fuck up. Uh, the first reason why it doesn't work. Um, to, to, to the second is middle of page 80. The middle of the, page 80. Okay. Uh, the lower right. So, uh, but if arbitrariness was the first reason given for objecting to this orthodoxy, the second is much more powerful. It is that there exists today a capacity to cope with information vastly in excess of the human capacity, with the result that the manager is no longer the arbiter of sophistication and control. He must delegate this role to the electronic computer, just as he delegated other managerial prerogatives in the past, thereby losing them, be it noted, to people who are more expert than he but junior. And just as he retained his seniority over these juniors, just as he remained in command, just as he used the efforts of his more expert underlings to build a bigger and more profitable firm, so now must he use the computer. The manager no more abdicates in favor of computers because they are more sophisticated in control than he, than in favor of maintenance men because they can keep the plant working and he cannot. But he has to know how to organize the maintenance men to keep the plant working, and he has to know how to organize computers to affect the firm's control. Moreover, he has to organize the plant so it can be maintained. He, also, uh, he has also to organize the firm so it can be computed with. There is the rub. People do not want to reorganize their firms. Important. <laughs> Very important. Especially coming from a managing consultant background. There's the number one problem. People don't want to change. They hire consultants to make plans that get put in drawers. Um, okay. Uh, more particularly, they do not know how to do stopped. so. More precisely still, they have no tools or means of description which would enable them to work out a new more mode of organization as distinct from a reshuffle of responsibilities. That is one reason for the sermon you've just been reading. We can hardly go on unless we agree that a new language and a new model, something different from the archetypal organization chart, are required. The other reason for the sermon is to warn managers that if they persist in drawing in computers on their existing org charts, they cannot possibly succeed in doing more uh, than bolster the humanly limited control system they have already got. Things may go more slickly. The, third, the firm may even save some money, uh, though this is little more than a pious hope in most standard applications, but the human filters remain and they remain the limitation. All right, so comments on this. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, this is, this is wonderful. I think one that really jumps out at me is that the, uh, they must organize the firm so, as, so that it can be computed with to make a computable firm. Or to, to, and and this, this thing of like organizing the computers and organizing the people and organizing these systems, that what, what you're setting up is a kind of rig of coprocessors. So it, it's no longer about the sort of um, Cartesian model of the, 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 the sort of brilliant mind of the tyrant motivates action down through the otherwise inert body. You're kind of structuring the body of the organization so that it can compute itself, um, which is big, big shift in mindset, right, to distributed kind of machinic cunning 
um, both both in like the silicon stuff and just in the kind of like rigging up systems of human interaction that are smart in themselves. Uh, that networks of people where the network is smart and the people are smart, that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, the, the thing of like the resistance to reorganization, right? That we're, we have this like phase change from like for, for a while, the kind of personal tyranny of the the staff was enough to to keep up with the scale of the problem or whatever. Um, and well, I mean, it was also a shit society to live in, um, and it still is. But um, the, all of the, to to reorganize to be better requires this complete mode shift and a reorganization. Um, it requires a breakdown of the existing structures and a reconstitution of new structures. Um, it's like um, it, that interpretation of like Deleuze and Guattari's body without organs as a reorganizable body, not 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 an unorganized body, but a recombinatorial body, one that is capable of breaking itself down, like a like a like a caterpillar, right? Breaks itself down and then reconstitutes as a butterfly. That's the kind of transformation you want. There is the ability to liquidate non-functional structures and have them recombine in smart ways rather than doggedly sticking to existing forms and, and familiar forms. Right. It's like the culture. Um, uh, yeah. Just to that point, um, it is interesting to think about what the neoliberals did in the wake of this book. Uh, so it's, you know, after the hippies gave up on the counterculture and became yuppies, um, I think that, and this is also true of the 68ers after 68, um, a lot of those people who were uh, university students and so on uh, went on to become managers. And in a sense they were kind of reacting against the managerial culture that beer is describing here, right? That like, you know, oh, this is like the old method of management. We're out with the old, in with the new. Uh, like, you know, the boomers are going to bring uh, a, a new tide into the organizations, right? Like that sort of idea that we're going to do a march through the organizations. We're going to, we're going to work within the machine. Um, and I think very much like a lot of the yuppie attitude sort of comes out of these circumstances. Um, and it's also uh, partially, I think, a, a sort of motivation uh, for support for Thatcherism um, in, in, at that time. The thing is, though, that the, the yuppies, what they and what what that generation ended up doing in Generation X that followed was very much to combine Beer's emphasis on computability with the idea of manager tyranny. Because you had, at the same time that there was this kind of like, you know, push against the old uh, Fortis Keynesian management structures, um, you have, uh, at the same time, uh, the cult of the entrepreneur and the cult of the CEO that, that, that come up. Um, so it's kind of like you can see the road not taken. Uh, when you read this section and, and you compare it to what the yuppies actually did. Uh, all right. So, uh, Steve, go ahead. Uh, yeah, just a, a, another silly anecdote. Um, so I, I do a lot of work with NASA here in Houston. Um, and I've seen, you know, the cyclic changes in how they reorg 
constantly. Um, and it's interesting just because like, not only do you have the senseless reorganization and constantly like, oh, here's a different org chart that comes out every two years. Um, maybe that will work. Uh, it's also because like they're changing the objective function. Every time the administration changes, right? Oh, we're going to the moon. Now we're going to the Mars. Now we're going to, to an asteroid. And so the because it is, you know, a large government agency with thousands of employees now, um, you know, it's not just how do we reorg to be more profitable. It's to fit whatever whims of whatever the administration is. And all they can do, because they don't really have any ability to lower you go down in the chain, is just to say, all right, let's reorganize all the groups and all the divisions. And I've been in so many meetings where it's just a big presentation of the new org chart. Um, and, you know, nothing actually changes. Nobody really talks to anybody any differently, but um, it's just a stagnating thing, you know? And then of course, like everything's behind budget and behind schedule and like surprise. <laughs> um, so anyway, just uh, just fun, fun examples of this in practice where every piece of it is just a massive failure. Yeah, totally. Um, the sort of cabinet shuffle approach to uh, <laughs> reorganization is rarely very useful. Um, uh, and I, I have definitely seen that in the Canadian government as well with the way that directives come down from the deputy ministers and everybody scrambles. And yeah, it's... Things do change, but not in very productive ways. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, which I think goes to like a part of uh, you know why there is such a resistance to to uh, to reorganization because like uh, you know like some of it is you know people just like defending their little fortresses and you know maybe even a sense. That uh, uh, you know, like, oh, I have a totally bullshit job. You know, like, <laughs> it really just—it's really just an accident of history that you know I'm making six figures to check Twitter all day. You know, like, and so, and, and I now have all, and, and I have all this free time to you know uh, uh, fight it. So you know, I'll, I'll fight it tooth and claw. But you know, like, there's also the you know, loss aversion is like a real thing, and is and you know, like, it's 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 not just that, you know, but you, you weight losses more heavily than you weight um uh, uh, potential gains. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, um, uh, uh, yeah, a, a potential, you know, a uh, 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 drop in your salary, you know, hurts twice as bad as, you know, a, a raise uh, uh, feels good. So, you know, like, and you know, that is kind of rational, right? Because uh, like really like uh, um, uh, equally weighting uh, gains and losses, that only works when you're playing like, you know, 10,000 games of poker. When, you know, you've just got one life and, you know, it's path dependent. You know, <laughs> like, 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 there's, like there's no reset where, you know, it, it doesn't really matter if the probabilities converge, you know, like you, yeah, you, you've got this one line that you got to not disrupt. And uh, uh, yeah, and also, also, also reminds me of, um, uh, uh, you know, in in Taylor, um, uh, uh, you know, he one of the things he keeps talking about is managers do not want to do any of this stuff. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't matter like how much how much more productive uh, uh, you know uh, uh, it, it's shown to be. Like even when they've actually seen it, like they they do not want to go through the process of like learning how to uh, um, you know define a job and like really train their their employees to do it. Like, yeah. yep. <laughs> okay the third key reason for objection to orthodox company descriptions and ways of discussing organizational structure derives from the other two if the distinctions we currently use are wholly arbitrary and indeed archaic first objection 
And if they are constrained by human limitation in a way which modern facilities falsify, second objection, that there is no guarantee uh, that what really matters in modern management can be expressed like this at all. It is, after all, one thing to express something ineptly and quite another to have no way of drawing attention to it at all. But this latter tragedy is quite possible and often happens with any grossly simplifying language. <coughs> Carbon credits. Um, so, <laughs> uh, let's, uh, Brett, go ahead. I mean, could some of this just be because, like, most, like, most things are not really even necessary? Or they're just like the. the... Uh, you cut out, Brett, sorry. Could it be the structure of capitalism itself that has like that's causing some of those problems? Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> the profit motive, and uh, especially the the tyrannies that that Shane was talking about, uh, which uh, are strongly encouraged by uh, capitalism because of the power imbalances that wealth concentration in, uh, creates. Uh, yeah. Shane, go ahead. Yeah, that's 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 all definitely true. Um, and I think the, the thing that kind of kept jumping out at me for a lot of this stuff was like how how we apply this to um, like leftist organizing and so on, especially to like randomness bullshit. Um, but this notion that like the stuff that matters may not even be expressible in the the given framework, right? That like. I, I think that's basically true of fucking everything we see from the fucking Leninist like psycho shit through to like DSA and like Corbin and stuff. Like a lot of it's just not even it's not even that it's not expressing the things that matter, it's that it's not capable of expressing them. It's like um I mean, look, we're, we're the show that keeps harping about the culture, right? Like, but the, in Excision where they have the the outside context problem, which it's 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 something that it's not just that they couldn't deal with it, it's that they couldn't conceive of even being able to deal with it. Or they couldn't conceive of like the, the ladder of abstractions they would have climbed to have to climb up in order to deal with it. And it, it arrived, it's just like literally just entirely outside of their kind of cognitive framework. And that's for a super advanced kind of culture, right? Like um yeah, I mean when we when we look at all these fucking trot weirdo sects and stuff, like the shit that matters is just categorically not expressible in their fucking framework. Like it they're literally wasting their fucking time, you know? Um. Yeah. Well, the re for all the reasons that came up in the revolutionary strategy series, um, that's the case. Uh, so um, now uh, we go on to the discussion of like, basically what Shane just said, um, blah, blah, blah. There's an unfortunate reference to sh savages uh, but Beer's point is still basically taken. Uh, I, you could you could say the opposite thing also applies. Like, you you try to explain the nuances of of a hunting gathering life to someone like me, and I was like, I don't even have the vocabulary to, like, or no, sorry, I don't even have the conceptual framework to to do that. Just off, yeah, <laughs> you'd have to give me a pretty serious education. Um, uh, so, um. The major difficulty about writing this sort of book uh, is that managers are not naive. They know very well the things that really happen. It would be foolish, uh, foolishly patronizing to try and instruct them in the subject of real life. 
but they would in turn condescend to the author if they thought that this was his object. An eminent physicist has said that an intelligent child could solve the most abstruse problems of modern physics if he could only understand what they are about. This is presumably because pure intelligence does not grow, it is an innate ability, and because a child is not encumbered with the languages, structures, and solutions which his elders know, and which actually inhibit their discovery of novelty. I mean, this is a very commonly known problem in science. You have to wait for the last generation of scientists to die in order to make any new discoveries, because their conceptual framework is dominant and you can't express anything beyond it. Um... Uh, that child should could do the same for us managers if he knew much about real life and business. We, for our part, do know, but we are constrained by our own experience as well as informed by it. In particular, we have a managerial culture in which some things distinctively modern cannot be expressed, although we know them. Um, so this is, like, interesting. It kind of interfaces with that, like, uh, unknown unknowns problem. Um, it, it's like they're, these are like sort of orthogonal ways of understanding that issue, right? Because it's like, yeah, there are unknown unknowns, there are known unknowns, but there's also kind of like known unknown unknowns, which you could gesture towards but can't actually talk about. It's like, yeah, I have a vague sense that this problem exists and I can see the symptoms of it, but I can't really describe what the hell is going on. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's maybe a, a, an issue that managers run into all the time. Um, okay, so then we get into the discussion of production control management accounting. I think we talked about this a little bit before in terms of how these things fuck up uh, org charts, but is there any further comments that people want to make about this? Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I think the, the kind of um, the, the important thing to get to here is um, that like when, when you're thinking of like where does the function belong in the org chart, well, it doesn't actually belong in the org chart. You have to think of this stuff as a network um, and as, as various co-processes that are interrelating um rather than like hierarchical sort of stuff so it's like just that these things cut across the concerns they they slice across the body of the org chart in such a way that just invalidates the model and you really do have to like have a different model that can be a bit more kind of network like and um and account for these uh cross-cutting concerns um there's yeah. a yeah i mean there's, there's a fair bit of a fair few words here that are kind of just getting to that kind of thing of like um we need something a bit more rhizomatic rather than the, the tree-like kind of structure um it reminds then, me a lot of... I think that that then kind of is the on-ramp into talking about the body as the model. Right. And it reminds me a lot of um, countries that built their train networks in the uh, the hub-and-spoke model, uh, where, it, where it's, it's essentially like Paris is the hub, everything emanates from Paris. Or Bangkok is the hub, everything emanates from Bangkok. You run into all kinds of problems where there's actually connections between regions of the country that are really important but they can't be expressed in the rail network because the principle is everything goes through the capital um shane go ahead 
Now, that's just such a fascinating example, right, of that kind of like the degeneracy of that kind of thinking, right, of like the uh, the tree thinking, right, where there's a, there's a central privileged term and everything else is a leaf, right, uh, which denies the uh, ontological kind of reality and richness of the leaves, right, well, they're not really leaves, but in this model they are, and it's the central term that dominates. And what you just end up with then is like, oh, our, our, our transport network is kind of fucked because I can't go from one city that's right beside it to another city, right? I have to go through the central term to get back there. Um, acknowledging the reality of the kind of patchwork quilt that is the, the sort of world is a much more fruitful um, way to go about things rather than insisting on central terms and like privileged root terms as being as having more reality than their, their, their leaves uh, counterparts have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, indeed. Uh, all right. Um... <laughs> Beer talks about that example that Lauren mentioned earlier of being directly under the, the general manager uh, and like sort of being up against these department managers who have real prestige, but you're just this one person who's at this totally inappropriate level of the organization and you can't fight your fights. Um, and saying, as an experience, by the way, this was considerable hell. And it certainly provoked thought about the company's organization chart. Uh, yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, okay, then there is that example of line staff confusion that I brought up earlier when talking about the, the Leninist organizations. Um, So, and so by all these roots, the arguments from arbitrariness to archaism and from structural inadequacy in the orthodox model, we return to the basic contention. A new model is required, which will actually work. Now, the term model has, has been slipped into this chapter already. People are beginning to appreciate the sense in which a company organization chart is, or at least is meant to be, a model of the real organization. They often get into difficulties, however, with a more elaborate use of the word. So uh, we have the model as a mathematical equation, uh, the model as a theory, the model as a hypothesis, uh, the model as a physical thing. And Beer says, well, you know, you'd be inclined to say like the mathematical theory is the most sophisticated and the physical thing is the least sophisticated because uh, that's like a toy that a kid would play with. Um, but the reality is the physical thing, uh, it looks the least sophisticated and yet, uh, these people have understood best. We talk about a model ship or a model railway, especially we talk about a working model. In these expressions, four key notions are embedded. There is scaling down in both size and complexity. Uh, so there's a model of Shakespeare's birthplace. Um, uh, there is transfer across, where, whereby actual parts of actual things are represented again in their relative positions. Um, and arising from this, there is workability, by which I mean that the model can, in principle anyway, operate like the original. Thus, a model train actually runs around a model railway, and it looks so much like the thing modeled that cinefilms of models can be substituted for film of actual trains and successfully pretend to be real. That this can be so, although the engine may be delivered by clockwork and no real railway engine was ever so driven, introduces the fourth point. The model is a good model if it is appropriate. 
someone watching the film just mentioned is not in the least concerned with how the engine is powered, but an engineering student who dismantled a model railway engine in a technical college and found an enormous coiled spring inside would not be impressed. So, you know, the model train that's used in practical effects uh, is totally appropriate to producing a film because what matters is the visual effect, but it's not appropriate to uh, be used as an instruction uh, device in engineering. Um, and this is something that comes up a lot in computer graphics, right? This kind of, these kinds of modeling dilemmas. Um, uh, because a lot of it is the kind that is uh, workable and appropriate in the visual sense, but doesn't actually model the thing that it's supposed to be modeling. Uh, it just does it for the purposes of presentation. Um, it's that kind of Potemkin village uh, sort of model. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Man, and uh, I, I, I love this whole like a uh, uh, discourse on modeling, and, and like like I, I feel like this this like um uh, uh this will also probably be a part of like the variety engineering that like he goes into later, because like like that that, that that is like definitely a thing of like yeah, because any model is gonna highlight certain aspects of the thing in question and you know can conceal others, and uh, yeah, like, like they are very like uh, application specific. And like, like, uh, uh, I bet, I bet, I bet, uh, yeah, that that's gonna, yeah, come up with like, yeah, variety engineering stuff. Yeah, uh, I think so because um, you're trying to organize something when you create the model and actually uh, use variety intelligently. Uh, it kind of reminds me of like the people who are like. Yeah, can't we just, like, have a game that is, like, it, it looks like a Ubisoft AAA Assassin's Creed game and is also exactly, like, this level of sophistication of Dwarf Fortress? No. Uh, for reasons of variety, uh, right? Like, that's that's just, it's too much. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to harp on that, um, like uh, the, the holding of it being more than analogy, right? Like the metaphor versus metonym thing. But the, the, the model train here is interesting because, like, it's it's not that the model train is like a train; it is a train. Like, as as in the the feature they're controlling for is trainness, as in it is a a train of of objects that are coupled to each other. That's what that's what that's what a train really is. But in our minds, we always think of like the trains we're familiar with. Always, specifically, either steam engines or the particular trains that happen to go around our country or our city, right? Um, and we might be thinking of like, ah, oh, well, the toy train clearly isn't one of those, but it very much is. It, 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 because the feature they care about is it being a chain of things that is pulled from the front. They don't really care about like, oh, well, when I go on the train, it's like the the, the, the chairs are soaked in vomit and like the, the, the toy train doesn't have vomit chairs. So how could it possibly be a real, you know, this is a little train. You're getting lost in the wrong kind of details. You know, the details you care about are the ones that are transferred into the new domain. Um, right. The details you don't care about, such as vomit chairs, they don't come. They don't come with you. Yes. Yeah, Saturday morning train simulator um, has yet to be constructed with smell o vision. Um, but yeah, there are different dimensions of trainness uh, that people are actually interested in, but it makes them no less. Uh, part of trainedness um okay cool um so he says uh 
no one complains that these models are mere analogies as long as the aptness of the model is properly defined. Now, the criticism of the organization chart as a model of the firm is that it is not appropriate as modeling those aspects of the firm we most wish to understand, which have to do with control. They have to do with control. They don't have to do with apportioning blame. Um, and control here in the sense of, like, regulation, uh, not in the sense of the tyrant controlling the organization. Um, in all fairness, the unfortunate chart did not set out to be that kind of model. The trouble is that, since this is the only model we have, people insist on trying to use it inappropriately. It is as if we poured paraffin into a plastic model of a jet airliner in the hope that it would fly. It's like, yeah, no. <laughs> um... It falls from these considerations that if we wish to think about control in the firm, we should use a control system as a model. Control systems, as was explained at the outset, are the topic of study of the science of cybernetics. The trouble is that control systems of sufficient complexity to serve as adequate models of the firm are themselves so complicated that cybernetics does not fully understand them except through models. So, again, we can't build a model of the firm from first principles. We can isolate the uh, general principles of cybernetics that he's described at the beginning of the chapter, but that doesn't give us the capacity to build a model of the firm from first principles because it's too complicated. Um, so we're going to rely on models to help us get there, to bootstrap something. Um, <clears throat> in other words, uh, cybernetics is actually done by comparing models of complex systems with each other and seeking the control features which appear common to them all. These invariant features, as it were, the laws of controls itself, certainly do exist. They can be invoked in the design of any controlling mechanism for any system, and we saw some of them used like that earlier, uh, in Chapter 2, for example. But although fundamental rules of the game are an enormous help, and although they are neither arbitrary nor archaic, they are not enough. So I think that the, the problem of postmodernism would be to declare that these are actually arbitrary. Because the system is so complex, these general principles that you're pointing to are actually arbitrary. And they, they don't actually mean anything. Um, but Beer is saying, no, they are not arbitrary. They're not archaic, but they're also not appropriate for grappling with this problem in its entirety. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was actually just, just thinking of, of like the difference between yeah, like uh, 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 there have been kind of two reactions to the the uh, realization that uh, you know you never really get reality, like, like you never really get the thing in itself or or or, or whatever. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, you you either yeah, you either just uh, throw your hands up in the air and do the postmodernism response. And uh, uh, you know, n n you know n n nothing matters. And, you know, nothing is true. Or you know, like I think there are more constructive ways from like um, epistemological um, uh, constructivism to sort of understanding that yeah, I mean you know, like our under our understandings are like created and maintained by like our brains and our social systems, and we're kind of subject to those dynamics. And uh, um, also yeah, like related but not identical um, uh, instrumentalism in a philosophy of science, just like uh, uh, yeah, like uh, we're we're just trying to make 
stuff that you know uh, makes predictions. Um, uh, uh, you know, like even if you know you go into quantum and you see, uh, man, you know, this whole like a uh, uh, um, uh, you know strict orbitals thing in a uh, in an atom. Uh, it's not kind of not how it works. But uh, uh, you know, like uh, you can. But if you're just trying to do some chemical engineering, like uh, you know, you can design good drugs like with one tenth of the math, and it's the exact same results. So you know, like why why not do that? And uh, um, I think also like uh, um, uh, I think uh, Bogdanov also like puts like the, the finest point on it and just says uh, yeah the it's all about uh, coordinating social labor and so you know like if these models like help you coordinate the kind of social labor you're trying to do then like good <laughs> yeah uh, it's, it's it's kind of like the distinction between pragmatism and postmodernism right um, in terms of like describing uh, approaches. Um, Okay, uh, let's let's go, keep going. Uh, so, <clears throat> when we criticized existing approaches to management theories arbitrary and archaic a little while ago, we also found them lacking in structural adequacy. This third matter remains a problem because natural laws have to be obeyed, they will be in any case, but they tell us nothing about design. Right? Um, the natural laws in themselves don't even necessarily suggest what the problem is. Uh, so it's, it's uh, uh, yeah, that's that's a very interesting point. Um, so he says, uh, suppose we were the architects of a building. We might know a little bit the law of gravity. Uh, we might know about thermodynamics, uh, but that we are no nearer to setting the building's design because we do not know yet what it is for or how it will be used. Similarly, we could set out here many statements about the things that can and cannot be expected to work in the management of a business on the basis of cybernetic laws, but we should be no nearer specifying the basic design of its management structure or method of working. Um, and that, I think this is maybe a, a bit of a mistake uh, that people get with the VSM, actually, is that um, the VSM is a model and seems quite useful but it isn't itself the organization you're seeking to create. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, like, um, I think there's there's a kind of temptation to just use it as a blueprint of like, hey, look, at this, these are boxes, and if we if we fill in all the boxes, um, then we'll, we'll, we'll be golden. Uh, but no, 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 you, you absolutely have to have something intentional in mind, right? Like, there, there has to be some purpose that it's oriented towards. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, and it you know, like, um, that's where kind of like the art, uh, the art in, uh, management, uh, design comes in or in, in actual like practical applied cybernetics comes in. Um, okay. Uh, so, uh, he then goes through, uh, animal ecology. Uh, he goes, uh, he says, um, animal ecology is quite chancy. Um, so it's, it's prone to very serious disruptions, um, like plagues and so on. Uh, <clears throat> artificial ecology uh, and economy, but he's like, well, our economy sucks, so why would we use that as a model, right? Like, national economy. It's like, but we said that the control system to be modeled ought to be recognized as highly successful. <laughs> it's like, no, not, not that. Um, no, let us not be too coy. It can hardly be accidental that so many anatomical and physiological terms, descriptions, and comparisons have already appeared in this book. The fact is that the firm is very much like an animal, let us say a human body. Um, 
the comparison is very obvious and could be extended in a literary way at great length, but we are not interested in comparisons, but in models, and we ought to be scientific rather than literary. I think this is a really important point. Uh, because it would be quite possible to take the human body as a model and then um, say, okay, let's reason from that and just, just do that. And many people have done that, right? And the problem is that you get, you can, if you're just using uh, literary analogizing, you can run into very flawed models of what, the body actually suggests right because you end up in like ideas about like oh yeah you got the brain it controls everything it's like the monarch who runs the country blah 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 uh you get the leviathan model of the monarch who is the people um uh and you know all kinds of like you know the sort of nazi organic polity models and this kind of stuff um uh literally uh in sort of the high militarist period in Japan uh, leading into World War II, uh, the, the nation was referred to as the Kokutai, which is to say the national body. Uh, and that was, that was, you know, led to these really like sort of authoritarian theories. But if you try to approach the body in a scientific way and the, 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 the modeling in a scientific way, you may actually arrive at some new insights that don't simply confirm your biases and how they're expressed in literary metaphors. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was gonna, I was gonna raise that sort of stuff of like the, the kind of Nazi style, like um, organic corporatism or whatever the fuck they called it. Um, and like some people, especially on the left, get a bit kind of spooked by this kind of like organic metaphors or like using kind of organic systems as uh, what what beer is doing here, right? Like trying to trying to extract these kind of features and to and even saying like. Um, that social systems, like uh, above the level of the individual, they function the same kind of way because it does remind us a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, it's something to always be on guard against, right? Are we just using a kind of romantic analogy or are we being properly scientific about extracting the real and variant features of a thing? Um, but yeah, and also to say that this doesn't, this doesn't, necessarily mean that you're just you're just going back to fucking nazi weirdness or like um or the the sort of um the, those kind of smoke screens of justification right that kind of romantic kind of uh, naive kind of interpretations of bodily metaphors and such um that's always something to be on guard against um this just when he's when he's talking previously about the, the why ecology isn't a good model is um is that this, these ecological systems are not self-aware in the way that we mm. care about, right? And like, um, I think as, as you go up the stack from like, uh, just like physical matter through to like, um, you know, base organic sort of stuff and up through, through societies, you get more and more reflexivity, right? Like you get more kind of ability for the system to turn back on itself and operate upon itself. And for ecology, that's, it's not super self-aware. It's kind of maybe self-aware at the level of the genome, like being vaguely kind of self-directing but not entirely so that's that's not the stuff that we care about like beer beer's ears prick up when you get to the, the realm of things that are self-aware right like systems that have these feedback loops that make them um reflexive in this in this way, way that we care about and th that becomes more so at the social level right like biological systems can be self-aware in this way but um there's potential for social systems to be, be even even more kind of absurdly aware of themselves and uh, and more more reflexive. Uh, I just thought that was a little interesting tidbit there that he's 
he kind of passes over just basicology as like, ah, it's, it's not really worth using as a model because it's not self-reflective. Well, it's interesting in, in, in that sort of context to think about Beer's pawn computer, right? That it is, it, it's, it was intended to be an ecological system that was self-aware. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but obviously that's an engineered thing rather than, uh, simply, uh, an ecology that you would find mm-hmm. out there. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, Okay, um, I think he talks about sort of like the excellences of the body, uh, some of the things that Lauren brought up earlier, um, and uh, he um, also uh, he also talks about survivability as a criterion, which was brought up in the previous parts of the book. Um, and then he gets on to something else. Uh, let us not undertake this effort, however, without some careful reflection on the foregoing arguments about the nature and utility of the model we intend to construct. Could a neuro-cybernetic model really tell us anything about running enterprise? Is there really a brain of the firm? There can be no interest in analogy at this point. A useful model, as already discussed, must be able to handle differences in scale, transference, workability, and appropriateness in convincing style. The rest of the book shall speak for its success in these terms, just as so many real-life applications have already attested to its potency in the diagnostic context. But there is something more to grasp quite firmly if the mistaken notion that we are dealing with an analogy is not to recur to the user of this work with concomitant unease. That is the concept of invariance, which first came up a few pages ago. It is a mathematical term whereby it is said that one thing is invariant with respect to something else. That is, it does not change as the other thing changes. In legally conducted business, the assets must be greater than the liabilities. This inequality is an invariant of all trading companies. It does not matter whether we're dealing in steel or soap. Uh, the opposite inequality is called bankruptcy, and that is an invariant too. Our neurocybernetic model pursues and hunts down organizational invariances in large, complex, probabilistic systems within the methodology of model building already noted. How does such a system operate effectively if its components are unreliable? It turns out that there are invariant rules governing such a system which may be derived from the theory of probability and expressed mathematically. It does not matter whether we are dealing with a brain or a firm. If it does not matter, people ask, what was the inducement to use a neuro-cybernetic model at all? The answer to that is that the human enterprise is in a very unsatisfactory condition. Its record of failure is mounting in the face of environmental change, and no one can be sure which aspects of organizational wisdom are conducive to viability and which to disaster. The human nervous system sometimes fails as well, but it seems to have resolved many problems the enterprise has not yet solved. It ought to be successful, of course, because of such long-term investment in its structure, and we should be ready to learn from those several million years of research and development. Okay. Let's talk about this. I think this is really important. Um, it's, I, th- I think what Beer is saying here is quite contentious on many levels. <clears throat> okay, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it. I, th- I think it checks out. You know what I mean? Like it's. Uh, it, it, it's especially important that he's, he's focusing on the invariant features, right? That like it's 
all, all of this, like, there will be objections that there's stuff that doesn't transfer and he's just not interested in the stuff that doesn't transfer. Um, is, um, yeah, and I think, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm kind of already basically sold on the pitch here. Like, I, I, it's, a, it's maybe, maybe there's something that's not jumping out at me as being maybe a problem. Okay, but, well, um, I, just, just to sort yeah. of, like, lay it out, it's like, well, okay, so we have invariance. Mm-hmm. The invariants do not suggest a model in themselves. Mm-hmm. That's something Beer asserted already. Um, right. The neurocybernetic model pursues and hunts down organizational invariances in large, complex, probabilistic systems. Okay, fine, but those don't in, it, those don't imply a model. Uh, mm-hmm. So, like, why? Okay, it's like the invariant in this sense is like a product of the model mm-hmm. like it, it, in the way that is knowable to us um right 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 yeah which is an interesting thing it's not like you go do separate research come up with the organizational invariants and then build a model based on them you develop a neurocybernetic model that is going to hunt down organizational invariants yes right that's true that is the case um yeah, there's there's something troubling about the formulation. Uh, it's, Matt, it's, some, it's somewhat recursive. Matt, go ahead. Uh, a, a, a slightly bong rip, but I, I feel like um, uh, um, you know, for, for, for like the layer of abstraction where where, where beer is really focused on, um, uh, um, uh, uh, like you, know, you, you probably could map most of the VSM onto like caterpillar species being. But like, uh, uh, maybe you could say that, like, for 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 his uh, um, objects of interest, it's whether there is a um, uh, a system three star. Because the thing is, like, for your body, there actually is. Like, like, like your immune system, you know, can do all kinds of crap to, like, you know, check if like a, a cell, you know, might be a little cancerous or you know have a virus in it and, and stuff. Like, it actually can, like, like really audit. But you know, um, caterpillars as a species can't. Like there's no way that you know because they're 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 you know, distributed all over a place and like you know, they, and, and so uh, something that's tightly coupled enough that like you like you actually could do that is maybe you know that's his object of interest. Right, and so using the neurocybernetic model would allow us to reveal that as a important criterion for viability in organizations. Uh, because it's important to the viability of neurocybernetic uh, organisms generally, um, uh, I guess is is kind of the assertion here. Um, and um, so, okay, so he says it's not about analogy. It's about the model. It's about the invariance. The model is going to get us the invariance. Why use the human neurocybernetic model? Um, it succeeds at things that our organizations don't. So he's like, well, yes, we could build a neurocybernetic model on the basis of our existing organizations, but they're really bad. We can obviously see that they're bad. They're failing in all these ways. Let's not start there. Let's start that it's something that works. And the thing that works is humans, and it's it's the result of a long-term investment in evolution. Um, and uh, Shane, go ahead. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's the right, the right way to think about this. I, I wonder if he's um, also kind of riffing on Ashby's bit about the contrast between shells and brains, right, as uh, as devices for regulating crucial variables in an organism, right? So you have the, um, the turtle wants to keep its blood volume pretty much constant, so it uses a shell as a regulator to do that, um, whereas a... Um, uh, an ape or like a, a person or whatever um you know a, a fencer is the is the is the kind of um or a swordsman is the is the example that ashby uses wants to keep their blood volume pretty constant as well but the regulator they use to do that is the brain and in ashby's model it's as if the brain were wrapped around the outside of the organism rather than being encased inside it that the brain is the is the ultra high variety interface between the crucial variables on the outside and the thing is that the fencer vastly outperforms the tortoise with his shell. Like it's, it's in this in the same sense that like, like the the midday sun is so much brighter than the stars that it's it's not just brighter; it's so much brighter that they all disappear from view. Right? That like these brains gigantically outperform fucking everything else that we know of, and so they're the kind of obvious um, object of study for this. Um, but I, I do take uh, Kyle's point that there's, there's something a little bit kind of self-recursive about the argument, right? Like we're going to use a model to just discover invariants that would suggest a model or, you know, there's something a little bit troubling about it. I think you're muted, Kyle. Thank you. It's, it's okay to bootstrap your understanding in that way. It's just like, um, I just want to be clear about what beer is, is doing um sure uh, sure yeah, yeah. Uh, uh matt go ahead yeah and, and uh, uh you know i i think um uh what, what we're having with, with some like nagging suspicions of of, of like uh, uh you know like is, is is this really the way to go yeah like i, I guess like like we don't really know i, I think uh, uh uh everyone you know lo, 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 like deciding to dive into the book is already kind of you know lo, like uh yeah minimally like the idea seems to make enough intuitive sense but you know mm. like like you gotta be careful about, about, about like uh uh you know like that being uh, uh, you know the the guy like 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 minimally you know you shouldn't uh, uh, put it put into dogma uh, 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 just yet because I mean like lots of things make intuitive sense you know heavier objects falling faster than lighter objects like like that makes total sense like that is a very reasonable like thing to conclude yeah um, uh, uh, yeah uh, 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 personally like uh, you know I, uh, what what I'll go back to is like um, how you know like things really were like going well in 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 in, in chile you know up and up up until the coup um uh, uh, and you know like beer was really good at uh, uh um you know um uh doing the management consulting and and so like but you know like uh you know people who were really good at things aren't necessarily good at explaining why they're good at them so you know like uh, uh we don't really know how much of uh that is really was really crystallized uh into the vsn but you know mm-hmm. like like uh, 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 uh so you know uh, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, I think we can have enough subjective confidence to explore it and maybe like uh, try to create some little organizational experiments to really like uh, flesh out like certain aspects of it. But yeah, yeah, like uh, uh, um, yeah, not necessarily put it on too much of a pedestal yet. Yeah, it, it it's more like what I what I'm 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 trying to get a definite grasp on is. Um, Beer is cautioning us very strongly against analogizing, and yet he's he's developing an understanding by way of a model, and that is a very tricky uh, framework to work in. 
because um, you might think that working from a model implies analogizing, but I don't think that's what he's saying. Uh, so that's that's all I'm kind of getting at. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I'm in, I'm in agreement with all that. I think um, I think maybe one of the things we're sort of uh, concerned with in the background here is the risk of like anthropocentrism or anthropomorphizing uh, in 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 using the human nervous system as the the bootstrap stage zero to get to our understanding. There's all there's this huge risk that you'll actually just never get past it, stage one, right? Like that, it will just always kind of be haunted by this kind of familiarity with the thing. Um, and I, I think where where beer ends up is is somewhere healthy where having bootstrapped out of this very familiar analogy we end up with a concept of viable systems and of like this kind of neurocybernetics as not actually being peculiar to human beings it, it's it's a it's a general feature of all kinds of systems it's a it's a general feature of the world really um I think that's where beer wants us to get to is that like we'll we'll use our common understanding of of human stuff to get to a point where we recognize all these features that we con often consider to be uniquely human as actually being general features of the world. Yeah, but the but risk is always how, there that we won't actually get there, you know? How can we say that those things are, when we identify, so say we identify the features of human that work well, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of like using that fencer example that you were talking about, um, and then how can we point to organizations and say they do this well without analogizing to the way humans do things well? Because, like, yeah. that seems to be why beer is saying that we should use the human body because it's good at doing things and we can analogize to it. That's, that's just what's driving right, my right. brain a bit fuzzy. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I think maybe there, there, there's an angle in like um, uh, an analogy versus an abstraction, like mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and like beer is definitely very into like like these layers of uh, of, of of languages because like you know uh, um, any uh, you know any relation between two objects or even you know like saying that they're two different objects is uh, uh, you know is kind is kind of a violation of like the particularities of uh, of two objects hmm. you know two categories can be very different you know even saying that they're the same species you're saying that they're both caterpillars is still an abstraction so mm -hmm. like uh, uh, I, I think maybe that, that that's what he's saying is that you know like a uh, uh, you know uh, you know uh, a human is just an instance of this you know uh, more, more 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 general like a um, uh, class of things and uh, uh, and so you know it it, it, you, it, it might be um, analogizing if you go from uh, um, business to uh, you know bi uh, 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 business to um, uh, human, but like it's not analogizing to say that you know like these are both instances of like you know system three or whatever. So then, is the real issue that you're incautiously abstracting when you analogize, uh, Rudy, uh, and then Shane? So I think that you're all pointing at a good problem, which is, you know, like I, I, I read recently notes on technology by Bogdanov and he does this all the time where he says, well, these two things look similar if you squint your eyes, so they must be doing exactly the same thing. And beer is like, he still is guilty saying, and you see it all the time in complexity theory, like, well, these two things look kind of similar, 
because they showed similar patterns. So obviously a neuron is similar to direct percolation of insect flies. So obviously turbulence behaves like predator-prey models. And it's not apparent at all. Right, thank you. Uh, that's a very good example. I, I also am, another thing that's really brought to mind here is uh, the the way uh, in um, Murawski's book on cybernetics um, and economics, um, he criticizes uh, agent models for doing improper a a uh, analogs. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's a really long argument that he makes, but it seems like he's getting at a similar point uh, where it's like, this is actually an unfounded analogy. Um, uh, Shane and then Matt. Yeah, um, I just wanted to maybe pull an example from the text. So if we go back to page 86, uh, the, the page before the end, um, in the middle we have uh, control is integral and control is intrinsic. And then he goes through kind of two vague examples of the body and the firm. Um, and this... So the, these are examples of pointers in this general direction, but the the statement itself has nothing to do with either the body or the, fir or the firm. It's just it's a complete abstraction. Like it's it's a or it's just a thing about control. And then you have these instantiations of like examples of it. And like yeah, we're we're being asked to like make the connections across the domains in this kind of way. But the the point is not the 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 the, the body analogy or or whatever. It's it's to get to this concept of control being integral and it happens to be that um nervous systems are, are are kind of pretty damn good at doing in this kind of integration and they exemplify this property of being intrinsic rather than being transcendental like that they're they're inside the system being controlled um so yeah he, he does bounce back and forth between two domains to make the kind of comparative analogies but i think the the points that he's trying to get to are always general um Right. I mean, and it's okay to think dialectically like this. Yeah, I'm just, totally. yeah, I'm just uh, saying, you know, what are, what's mm -hmm. going on? Uh, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, for, for, for like a good example to, to keep in mind of like um, uh, um, over, um, over generalizing is, uh, uh, um, you know, there, there, there's this amazing, you know, uh, deep learning researcher, Jeffrey Hinton at uh, University of Toronto, like, you know, revolutionized uh, on, on, on machine learning. But, you know, like, he'll occasionally say things like, oh, yeah, backpropagation, you know, exists in the brain. And just, no, like, so we, we don't know that. Maybe the fact that it works for artificial neural networks is maybe a reason to look for something like that anatomically. But, you know, like, like you can't just, yeah. Get, you, 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 you can't just say that you, you don't know that yeah uh it, it kind of brings to mind um the way in which researchers have taken to modeling physical systems as information processing systems uh in physics like very commonly now uh so for example uh the black like a black hole is analyzed as an information processor um and that's used to assert uh properties of black holes um and I guess, like, you kind of need to go through experiment to and, and, and comparison to other findings in order to find out whether that analogy really holds. Um, but uh, I guess there's, like, properties of information processing that are not inherent to computers, which you can use to analyze those things. It, I, I, I'm just saying this is a very uh, 
a very tricky thing, and I, I, I am skeptical of the degree to which humans actually are able to purely abstract without uh, resorting to the analogs. Um, uh, Shane. Yeah, yeah, definitely right. Like it's, um, I'm, I'm very skeptical of the, the kind of like we, we can, we can reach towards it, but I don't think we'll ever really get there. The, the, um, the, the information processing computing thing is, is interesting because I, I don't know if it's in this book or is it in a different beer thing I was reading recently. But he, he, he does talk about how over the ages we kind of use the, the most hot contemporary technology as our main analogy. So for right for, for some people it's like oh steam you know steam engines are the the, the metaphor for how the brain works or. Um, and then later on, it's it's uh, electrical wires, and then later it's computers and stuff like that. Um, but at each of the, each of those stages, we do discover something about the world in general, right? So, like when we do when we use the computational analogy, it, it's definitely overstretched in a lot of in a lot of domains, right? Like it's like, um, oh, the market is a computer, the fucking this fly is a computer, all this kind of stuff, and it. The the, the analogies are, are are overstretched, but we do kind of discover that com computation is in some ways a general feature of the world rather than being something specific to um, beige box computers. So it, it's, a bit, yeah. it's a bit of a both thing, right? Like we do discover these, these are general features, but the analogy doesn't carry us all the way either. Like it's, 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 it, it's never quite the, the, the silver bullet that will describe reality, but it does give us some um, notion that the feature is more general, right? And, and I think a thing that I'm, I'm kind of getting at here is that Going off of Pickering's performative model, I think that a performative understanding of reality is fundamentally analogous. Um, right, like, right, sure. Because you're you you aren't asserting what's behind things as abstract principles that are absolutely determinative. You are trying to make analogies before between performances. Um, and so, the, the, I mean, yeah, that's mm -hmm. that's just a thought I had. Um, so, you know, Pickering's read of beer seems to be a little bit at odds with what beer is mm -hmm. saying here. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, sure. I, I'm interested. To, I'll let this go, and I'm interested to see where it goes further in the book. I just wanted to have an extended discussion about that because it seems like a really fundamental point of scientific scientific methodology that that beer is mm -hmm. asserting here. I agree. All right, so. That does it for the chapter. Um, we're going to go on to hopefully a somewhat shorter discussion in chapter seven. <laughs> Sorry for keeping you all so long with that. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, thanks for attending, everybody. Uh, I, I really appreciate all your participation. It's been super uh, thought provoking. It's been wonderful. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.